You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 006, where I continue my conversation with Tushar Shande, co-founder and head of research at Row Asset Management. This episode is sponsored by Saxo Bank and Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Regardless of what our testing may have been, uh, you can see and look at our real-time real track record and see that we have controlled our risk uh, very well on a daily basis as well as on a drawdown basis uh, for the entire program. And so once the position is on, uh, I guess there are two schools of thoughts. Some managers actively manage their position size and, and some people leave them as is. What, what's what's, what's uh, your preferred way of doing things and, and, and why did you choose uh, to go this, uh, this route? Yes. Again, uh, if you remember, uh, Niels, when we started off, we said that we are trying to think like or capture the behavior of discretionary traders. So if you're a discretionary trader, your typical style is you're a little hesitant to get in, you're slow to get in. Once you get in, you may get in with a large size or a small size based on uh, your feeling about what the trade is going to do. And then some discretionary traders will adjust their position on day to day, but most will just leave it alone. And uh, so that's the same thing as trading with a very wide stop. And then suddenly something will happen in the environment. There'll be some news item, like, for example, uh, the events in Ukraine this weekend. And then you'd come in on Monday morning and sell all your positions. So then you suddenly your stop that was uh, very wide will instantly become a market order to exit. So uh, our stops behave in a nonlinear fashion. And we use uh, many different exit strategies in combination so that, uh, and there are different strategies in different systems so that uh, we are looking at things like market volatility, things like overall volatility, things like uh, time in trade to decide whether our stop should be far away or close together. Now, part of the reason we can do that is because we have a break our style system. Uh, that gives us a much better ability to manage open trade risk, uh, for example, when we had the fantastic rally in Swiss franc. Uh, some time back. Uh, if you are a, uh, uh, a moving average type manager or if you're a manager that wants to control your risk in a narrow period, then what people do is they will say look at a, some period of time like 100 days and measure their standard deviation over say 100 days and say that we don't want to increase our 100 day standard deviation or VAR or some other measure of volatility beyond certain level. So let's say that uh, we'll just, for simple uh, simplicity, we'll say that we use a 100-day standard deviation and we don't want that to exceed, say, 2%. So if that 100-day standard deviation becomes 2.1%, then they will reduce their positions so that the volatility will now gradually come back below 2%. Now, this is a, a complicated process that adds to the cost because it increases the frequency of trading. It also means that sometimes you're penalizing a position that's being profitable uh, and has a long way to run. It also means that uh, there's always some lag between the time that you decide, okay, I need to adjust my position and what the market volatility actually does. So in many ways, uh, trying to actively manage your equity curve imposes an external exit condition in your, on your models, which really can't be tested because you don't know what the volatility is going to be in the future. 
So we feel that our approach is a much better and cleaner approach that can be more easily implemented. And clearly, uh, our real-time track record shows that we have controlled our risk uh, you know, in a reasonable way. So we feel that our approach is more consistent with uh, what's best for in terms of returns and versus risk, and also more accurately uh, captures the behavior of discretionary traders. So it's a way for us to differentiate ourselves. And it's also a lot simpler than trying to actively manage our equity curve. And of course, we are talking about the main trend following uh, models in the overall program. And, and just uh, uh, out of curiosity, uh, would any of them use any stop profit targets or is it just stop losses that you would uh, use, even though, of course, a stop loss could happen and, and exit a, a profitable trade? Yes, uh, we do not uh, use any profit targets. Now, this is one of the core principles of trend following, if you if you study trend following and you look at a distribution of the profit and loss from individual trades, what you see is that you have a distribution that is skewed to the right. What that means is you have one or two trades that are extremely profitable, where you make virtually all of your money, and then you have a few trades that are, and most of the trades uh, are somewhat profitable or somewhat unprofitable, and they, to they tend to cancel each other out. So the whole philosophy of uh, trend following it's profitable over the long term because you uh, are not in a rush to get out of your position. So uh, uh, we like to we like to say that we uh, take our profits slowly, but cut our losses at once. So top scholar, if you will. And uh, given that philosophy, which is central to the core principles of trend following, we feel that there is no particular reason for us to have a profit target because that would be counterintuitive. Now, obviously, if the markets are in a narrow trading range or even a wide trading range where they're trading between some upper bound and some lower bound, then obviously a profit target makes sense because you're going to take a profit against this boundary either for a long trade or a short trade. However, we know at some point there's going to be a breakout, the markets can start moving and have a fantastic trend, and that's what we want to capture, which means that we need to put on as large a position we can as we can as quickly as we can or as close as we can to the start of the trend and then to carry it up or down as close to the critical end point of the trade as we can. And that's what we've tried to do and that's why trend followers have been successful over the long run. So we feel philosophically there's little justification for using profit targets because that's self-defeating even though they obviously would be uh, you know, attractive uh, on during some months because of the market's trading in a narrow or wide trading range. And of course, you mentioned something interesting. You're saying that uh, what 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 you're trying to achieve is to get the biggest possible position on uh, for hopefully a very long-term uh, trend. But how do you distinguish? Do you use any kind of variable position sizing that allows you to do that? Or is everything fixed in advance with you know taking the same level of risk every time you get a signal? Uh, the answer is uh, that we actually, as we uh, we actually have a way to change the initial risk on a trade uh, algorithmically using fixed rules based on what we see happening in the market. So again, uh, in our discussion about how we are trying to uh, capture the trading strategies of discretionary traders, we've said that in some cases discretionary traders will feel very strongly about a trade because, say, uh, as we said, give the example of a change in leadership in a country like Japan. Uh, so you can change your, put on a much larger size. Um, uh, or, for example, uh, you knew that uh, when the Fed 
decided to uh, intervene uh, or uh, start QE2 after the famous uh, speech by uh, Dr. Bernanke at the Jackson Hole meeting. You could use that as an input and put on a very large position in equity markets because you knew what was coming. You know, it was telegraphed very clearly. We don't have the luxury of doing that because we use the same rules and we want to use an automated process. But we do have uh, a process by which uh, we don't have to take exactly the same risk of however many basis points per uh, trade for eternity. But we sometimes uh, use what we call a booster. So we, we have, uh, for our trend-following products, we can either go in one step. We can have 1x risk and step it up to 2x risk. Or we can go in steps. So uh, we could go with 1x, 1.25x, 1.5x, and so forth. So now, why is that relevant? Because uh, unlike some other trend followers, uh, you know, we're trying to, uh, we're not trying to add to positions. So uh, our whole focus is trying to put on as large a position as we can, as close as we can to the initial point of the trade. So that's why we spend a lot of time trying to come up with algorithms that allow us to automatically change the risk from, say, 1x to 2x in some form, either in a single step or in multiple steps, um, so that over time it does add significant value. And uh, as we know, we just have to get it right once or twice a year to make a significant uh, difference over a long period of time. And so now, in a sense, we've talked a little bit about the sort of the trend following side. Um, you know, three of your systems you mentioned uh, are following this type of approach, but of course, in slightly different ways. Um, but you also mentioned you had a, a third group that uh, trades slightly differently. Perhaps you could just sort of summarize some of the points we've talked about uh, on the trend following systems, uh, but put it into the context of, of, of this third group that I guess from what you've said is uh, what you use to try and protect against uh, sort of big events in the markets. Correct. Now, uh, if you uh, if you study trend following and uh, if you have invested with trend followers, you know that one of the primary failings of trend followers or is that they're not quick to recognize key turning points, and that's by design because we know that uh, you know we've discussed that we want to put on as large a position as we can and hold on to it as long as possible before we exit in order to. Uh, capture this uh, these very very few mega trends that occur randomly in the markets. So because we are positioned to capture the mega trends that go on forever, by definition we have to be able to sit back and absorb a lot of volatility, a lot of counter moves to the underlying trend because we don't know whether the markets whether the counter where the counter trend moves are going to stop and continue so that the trend will resume. So uh, that we've addressed using our first two groups of systems. Group three systems are really a counterweight to groups one and group two, where we say that, yes, we know that some trends are going to go on forever, and we have that capability using groups one and groups two, but we still need to have some buffer in the portfolio. And we also have mentioned that uh, one of the key design features or one of the key reasons why investors or allocators would like to have CTAs in their portfolio is to be able to react and offer a positive offset when they're sell-offs on the equity markets. Now, in the good old days, these sell-offs used to be very gentle and used to come on very slowly. But now with automation and computerization and Twitters and all the um, tremendous uh, speed at which information can be dispersed from one point to another, the rate at which markets respond to a perceived adverse event is much faster today than it was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. So that's the challenge that we're trying to address with our Group 3 systems. Now, what's the other side of the coin is that we cannot have a system that's so sensitive that it's going to 
change positions, you know, for every little wiggle of the market. So we need to obviously smooth out some of the market volatility and yet somehow be able to recognize that this uh, change in the direction of the market is potentially more significant than some other change in the direction of the market. So you can see that there's always some trade-offs involved in terms of how fast you want to react and so on and so forth. But what we've done with group three is we've uh, uh, primarily designed it to go short the equity markets and go long the bond markets when you have a rapid reversal in the equity market. So we're trying to reinforce the primary reason for owning CTAs uh, in the design of our group three systems. Excellent, Tushar. And just, just out of curiosity, um, do you just as, as a kind of a, a, a give a benchmark idea about how different the models are in terms of their trade length and, and just to give uh, the listeners uh, uh, an insight to, um, you know, how long they are looking to uh, to be in a position for? Right. So our, uh, our first two groups, uh, which are trend following in nature, are trying to hold a position from, say, one month to three months. And the uh, group three systems are typically holding it shorter than one month. Uh, but uh, we don't have any systems that are shorter than two weeks. So if you just use two weeks, one month, and one quarter as the rough benchmarks, then our longer term, our medium term systems will hold a system, hold a trade from, say, one month to one quarter, a little bit more than one quarter. And then our group three system will hold it, say, uh, approximately one month or maybe a little bit longer. Let's uh, shift gear a little bit to show away from the uh, individual models and just talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how trade implementation takes place. Uh, maybe you could just run through a little bit about, um, you know, how many times you need to run your systems uh, per day when it happens. And uh, and maybe also a little bit about how long it takes to, to run a, a, a whole program like this. Um, uh, typically... Uh we, uh, we've said that we are an end-of-day trader. So, Niels, we only need to do it once a day. But what do you mean by once a day? Because we have many different time zones. We have some markets that are in the Pacific Rim, so they have their own time zone. Then we have markets in Europe, uh, which have their own time zones. And then we have markets in the U.S., uh, which have their own time zones. So, in effect, we have to run the system once a day in each of these time zones. So, even though we're running the system once, we actually have to run it uh, three times, except, of course, on a holiday or a weekend, because we are catering to three different time zones. Now, uh, typically, it takes somewhere on the less than 30 minutes to run the system. Uh, sometimes uh, it may only take five or 10 minutes to run the system because we have to download the data. It's totally organized and systematized. We just run it. It spits out the tickets, and then we, uh, you know, we send the tickets on to the brokers, and you're done. So uh, some days it might take a bit longer, but typically we say less than 30 minutes. Uh, so somewhere between, say, 10 and 30 minutes. Uh, should take care of just about uh, everything you're likely to encounter uh, during a year. And I guess there will be days where your system doesn't even have to, uh, you know, doesn't even trade when it is a medium-term uh, trend-following system. Would that be right? Correct. Uh, we have about 800 to 1,000 round turns per million per year. So uh, we're not, uh, if we have, say, uh, there are many days uh, where you may have no trades at all. Uh, typically, uh, we'd only have one or two trades a day. Uh, you know, and on a busy day, we may have four or five trades. So if you have, say, uh, more than five trades and we're having a very busy day and uh, most of the time we're doing between zero and two trades. 
Excellent. I also wanted to talk a little bit about sort of risk management. I know you've touched upon it in your uh, talk about how the models work, but I just want you to try and maybe uh, describe and define what you uh, mean by risk and how the program is taking that into account. Uh, you know, you mentioned the integrated risk management as being part of the design. So maybe you could speak a little bit about that and also how you report and inform investors uh, with regards to risk because obviously uh, many investors are very focused on on this particular point yes uh, Niels, we are uh, very aware of risk uh, as uh, ctas uh, one of our primary responsibilities is to control risk uh, we have a lot of leverage and the leverage is a two-edged sword so you know you, it's very easy to get nicked uh, so what we've done is uh, because of the design of our systems, we are a break our style trader and so forth, as we've discussed, uh, and we're putting on uh, a position all in or all out, and the number of positions can expand or shrink. Uh, what we've done is we've embedded our entire risk management into a single uh, integrated trading platform. Uh, but what you also have to recognize is that risk management is not strictly a uh, a number like calculating VAR. It also means being aware, you know, fixing any trading errors. It also means uh, being uh, you know, submitting the orders on time, confirming that the brokers have received our tickets, and so forth. So a risk control is a very elaborate process that involves many different uh, activities, making sure, for example, that our uh, statements check out every day, that there are no uh, out trades, that uh, the trades around our statements are also the trades that we should have based on what trading we've done. So to knock out and eliminate and fix trading errors and so on. So risk is in many different forms. Uh, but the simplest form that everyone thinks about is uh, value at risk, which is typically a one-day event. And we certainly provide all that because we have uh, enough consulting who is our outside accounting uh, resource that will give you very elaborate reports, uh, which give you uh, detailed insight into all the positions and what they've done today and this week and this month and this year uh, with all the value at risk and so on and so forth. So all that information is available and we'll give it to you free and we'll updated every 24 hours and it's provided by an outside third party so there's no uh, opportunity for us to play any mischief. Now, uh, what we have done is that rather than worry about just value at risk which only gives you one day's worth of control, we're taking a much longer view and we're trying to uh, limit our overall peak to value drawdown. Now, I've already told you what our model is. Our basic model is that the for a diversified trader like us, the drawdown risk is typically three to five times a monthly standard deviation. So part of our job is to make sure that uh, we've arranged our uh, risk and uh, initial risk so that our uh, long-term standard deviation is around 5%, a little bit more, a little bit less, based on what's happening in the markets. And so our risk multiplied that by four is about 20%. And we've done approximately that, a little bit more, a little bit less, depending on which particular time window you look at. So uh, we've gone beyond merely looking at uh, one day's risk in terms of value at risk or so forth, but we've also tried to limit our total peak to value drawdown risk. So that's uh, quite different from what other people have done. And we've totally integrated this into our algorithmic process. So it's not anything we need to think about. It's just automated and, you know, push a button and it takes care of itself seamlessly. But we've we've also gone beyond just looking at drawdown risk to also worry about avoiding trading errors making sure that uh, all the tickets go out on time, making sure we have proper backups for data and uh, so on and so forth, and our various uh, trading records and uh, software and 
servers and all of the uh, back office infrastructure needed to automate and deliver a very consistent execution process. And just just uh, out of curiosity, correlations, a lot of people talk about correlations and uh, and a lot of people put a lot of emphasis on that. Just just very briefly, how what kind of approach did you take uh, to, to the point about correlations in your risk management? Uh, typically, uh, the problem with correlations is that correlations are not static. So if you look at the correlation from, say, one group to another group over you know, the yesterday, over the last 10 days, over the last 10 years, you get very different answers. So we've tried to avoid uh, using correlation uh, directly or explicitly in our day-to-day -day risk management because it's uh, too unstable uh, and also is, doesn't fit with our problem that we don't have the same number of positions every day. Sometimes we can have a lot of positions, sometimes we have very few positions. But of course, uh, by saying that in our overall long-term test, we want to we have adjusted our initial risk to maintain a certain long-term standard deviation. In effect, we have smoothed out the correlation between the different sectors into a single number, and it's smeared into a single number called our long-term standard deviation. So uh, we're not looking at day-to-day -day or week-to-week -week changes in correlations because we think they're too unstable, but we have implicitly absorbed and averaged out the correlations uh, between sectors over a very long period of time. Now, drawdowns is, of course, part of, uh, well, uh, the risk management uh, is, of course, uh, uh, trying to avoid too many drawdowns, but uh, drawdowns are important, and it uh, uh, tells uh, a little bit, I guess, about how the design of the program uh, has been done. Um, maybe you could just recap for me. I know you mentioned that uh, the worst drawdown of the Altus program occurred uh, in February 2010, um, lasting 20 months. Uh, perhaps you could tell me a little bit about how long time it took to uh, recover this drawdown uh, initially. Uh, we recovered in 18 months. And uh, again, you have to think of, of this in the context of uh, what was happening in the environment to go back to where we were. You know, was it a high, very windy day on the golf course or was it a very rainy day on the F1 course uh, or with it icy at Sochi? Uh, or this, it was very slushy for the, uh, for the skiers in Sochi and so forth. So uh, you have to uh, think of the time to recovery in terms of what is happening in the environment, what is happening in terms of the uh, uh, portfolio weights and the system design. Uh, but our recovery time is 18 months. And I guess this is sort of a little bit of a philosophical question, but the drawdown profile that you wanted to create in, uh, you know, with your design of, of the program, does that take into account the kind of investors that you want to attract or is it more sort of a, a personal taste meaning that uh, some people have very clear uh, ideas and opinions about what is the best way to trade the markets both from performance and a drawdown point of view uh, or, or how did you go about um, ending up with the profile that the Altus program has? We had a very clear design philosophy as we said uh, in terms of uh, uh, why we're putting certain uh, systems together, why we have different groups of systems in terms of how we want to respond to the markets, and then uh, also uh, by the breakout style and how we've embedded all the risk uh, management uh, all into the overall design of the systems. So uh, uh, it's hard to uh, uh, find a consensus 
on what's the best way to do this uh, because clearly uh, different people, someone may have a trading horizon of 10 minutes and holding a position for two minutes is a very long time for them. Uh, on the other hand, there could be some uh, some traders for whom holding a position for three months is too short for them. So, uh, uh, you know, managers as well as investors come in many different types of preferences. Uh, we try to find a solution that we think is sustainable, uh, that uh, expresses our belief that uh, uh, you need to carry the, the trade as long as possible. You need smart exits, you need smart entries, you need to have smart risk management, you need to have smart initial risk allocations. So we've tried to uh, be uh, adaptable and flexible uh, while using the same rules on all markets. So in many ways, uh, these are difficult conditions that you somehow have to reconcile and uh, trade off. And uh, I thought we've done it pretty well. Tusha, I wanted to jump to something different. I wanted to jump to something that is very close to your heart, and that's uh, the point of research. And um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about sort of your general, um, you know, research cycle uh, and and how you go about these uh, research reviews. Again, that's a uh, well. First of all, we do research all the time. We are, you know, we are. Uh, uh, constantly thinking about uh, is that a better way to do what we do uh, and of course we have to account for what's happening in the markets and there's always a question of uh, are you changing too soon or are you not changing quickly enough and uh, sometimes it's really difficult to answer these questions uh, because they're ambiguous and, and uh, as we started said at the very beginning we love, live in a world of randomness so uh, it's not a cause and effect world in other words which means that uh, just because you made a change doesn't mean that uh, uh, you're going to find out whether the change has been any good uh, for quite some time. And then uh, conversely, you may not get any benefits from the change for a long time. So uh, making changes is a tricky business. Uh, my certain view is that we're doing research all the time. Uh, we, uh, if we can find a significantly better way to do things, uh, we're happy to make the change. Uh, in general, uh, in my experience, it's best to make a change when you're at a new equity high. Uh, uh, but and of course the trading conditions have been difficult so we've had to make some change in the responses based on uh, the unique role that central banks have played uh, in the last few years which uh, probably won't be repeated for quite some time hopefully uh, uh, so uh, I think it's a, it's a tricky question but there's the, you always have to keep doing research and you have to keep asking yourself whether this is the best time to do it uh, but it really goes back to the basic design philosophy and the structure of the program and I think if you're clear on that then it's very easy to decide whether a particular change really adds value or not. And if you look back since the inception of the Altius program, is there anything you could um, point to where you say these were sort of major research findings and, and uh, perhaps what prompted you to, to discover what you discovered and, and make the change? Uh, certainly one of them was the uh, major role of the central banks because clearly if you look at the uh, data leading into the crack up of Lehman there's nothing in the data in the last 15 20 25 years to indicate the extraordinary role played by the central banks so they had a very specific effect on the uh, bond markets and the equity markets that were really unprecedented uh, so that's clearly something that we had to come to grips with um, then the, the second part of this whole equation becomes uh, being able to characterize the environment because part of the problem uh, is that uh, uh, because the sectors 
were or because the trends were so limited in uh, in terms of where they were occurring you certainly we had to find some way of quantifying the trend strength and uh, one of the research outputs was something we call the row trend barometer that allows us to set the context so we can understand our performance and the performance of the others in terms of what's happening in terms of what's happening in our portfolio because uh, as we as we talked about the sports analogy uh, you know a certain golfer's swing doesn't change necessarily but uh, you know the the high winds are going to change the way he has to play shots so the same way we need to understand uh, you know our systems system rules are preset you know they don't know what's happening in the in the environment as such so we have to decide whether a particular set of rules can be defeated by the environment due to what's happening and and um how different is the Altus program today, would you say, compared to when you uh, started off uh, six years ago? Not very different. Uh, if you, As we said, uh, we started off with three systems, now we have six. Uh, our core systems, the first three systems, continue uh, in essentially the same form with a few minor tweaks. Uh, and the new systems are consistent and reinforce or fill in some holes that were left in the design by virtue of the first three systems. Uh, but they all break our style systems. Uh, you know, they have the similar design philosophy in terms of entries or exits or trade sizing. So in a way, uh, we have not changed very much. Uh, and if you look at our live equity curve versus the simulated equity curve uh, from day one of the system that we are using, they look very, very, very similar. But uh, we've had to uh, reduce our volatility in the markets because of the extraordinary uh, events uh, of the recent past. Of course, investors always want firms to uh, to do research, uh, and um, I don't know what your general view is. Um, of course, I guess a lot of people also believe that the more PhDs you have in your research team, the better your research is. But do you have any experience that uh, you might share and 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 view on this particular topic? Uh, well, if you just look at the track record of uh, real life CTAs, uh, you'll find that. Uh, you don't have to have a PhD on your staff in order to have great returns. And having a boatload of PhD doesn't guarantee you that you're never going to have severe drawdowns. So uh, having PhDs is not a necessary nor sufficient condition for great performance. Uh, having said that, clearly, you know, PhDs can add value. And uh, especially for larger managers, they have more issues to grapple with. And uh, they need more different kinds of systems. And you know, uh, like all individuals, certain Individuals might be good at one type of problem and some other individual might be good at solving some other types of problems. So uh, it's really a case-by-case uh, -case basis and uh, certainly the larger managers can make a stronger case for hiring a larger research staff. Is there something, by the way, about maybe doing too much research? I mean, can you overthink things? I mean, trend following have been around for three, four decades and generally has been very successful. Sure, we've had a spell now of three, four years where performance has not been great. It's not been disaster either. Um, um, but, you know, is there something to say that you can do too, you can overthink and do too much research, do you think? Well, uh, sort of a leading question, Niels. But yes, it's certainly possible. It's certainly, it's certainly a possibility that uh, you can make too much, too many changes. And as we've said throughout this conversation, we live in a world of randomness. So uh, uh, the mere fact that you have made a change in response to something in the recent environment doesn't mean that the change is going to uh, produce positive effects forever into the future because the market environment will change and the market for sure will create a new environment that defeats whatever changes you made in response to some previous state of the environment. And uh, you just have to look at the track record of uh, of the largest managers, which theoretically have the most uh, 
number of PADs and the maximum break, uh, brain power, if you will, uh, applied to the problem. And uh, uh, there are numerous examples where uh, CTAs or managers have blown up or have uh, had drawdowns significantly greater than uh, their record previously or their research might suggest. So, yeah, maybe in some cases you might be doing too much research. But you have to remember that uh, uh, the more things change, the more things stay the same. I mean, trend following uh, requires a certain discipline and a certain uh, ability to absorb volatility and ignore the day-to-day -day noise of the business. And before we jump uh, out of the research uh, area, um, at its core, in your opinion, why does uh, why does these systems make money? Is it because of economic events? Is it fundamental? Why why do these trend-following systems make money over time? Do you think uh, primarily because you have one or two really massively outlier trades that are hugely profitable and way more profitable than you could ever imagine or you'd be led to believe or expect when the trade is initiated. Uh, and that happens because there's some new information that changes the market or that uh, has not been properly factored into the market. So for example, uh, think of the drought in California uh, that's uh, currently going on. Uh, say five for, you know, when it, it, this is the second year of a severe water shortage in California, so that's going to affect crops. It's going to affect the cost of uh, feeding, say, animals and livestock. And so, uh, uh, you know, cattle prices are going up uh, or hog prices are going up. Now, no one knows when this drought will be resolved. Uh, we don't know how the supply, how long the supply-demand imbalance will persist. And the market will adjust and consumers will adjust. And then eventually the price will find some equilibrium. So the reason great trends occur is because there's some uh, uh, sort of uh, change in the background or the environment uh, for that particular traded instrument, and the market is not quick to recognize, or the driving forces drive the bus or drive the trend far longer than expected. So if you look at the Swiss franc, which had an incredible trend uh, a few months ago or a few years ago, uh, it went much farther, much faster than anyone could have imagined. Uh, and this has happened over and over and over again because that's how randomness works. So the basic philosophy of trend following is that with the, we have to wait for these mega trends to occur. And uh, we can go through a period when there are few or uh, relatively few or no mega trends as we've had in the last few years. Or you could have a period where something happens that causes an, a huge trend in the market. And the only way to catch it is to be systematic and disciplined and put on your position and sit tight and wait for the market to go wherever it goes, which often takes longer and travels further than anybody exists, uh, expects. Absolutely. Tushar, before we, uh, we wrap up uh, uh, today, the CTA industry has gone through a rough time, as we've alluded to a couple of times during this uh, talk. Um, how do you see it overcome these uh, challenges and, and, and what is it that uh, will perhaps uh, reignite the interest uh, in, in, in these CTA strategies, in your opinion? Uh, certainly the primary way to reignite interest would be a, uh, a return to profitability by trend followers. So that could happen uh, when trends emerge. Uh, it could happen when there's a sharp reversal in the equity markets and CTAs can reposition faster than other strategies uh, like uh, as happened in 2008. Uh, it could happen when uh, people uh, 
realize and recognize that the role of central banks uh, in the marketplace will diminish as it will eventually, if not tomorrow, maybe next year or the year after. So uh, certainly the emergence of interest will be driven by better performance uh, by the CTA industry as a, as a whole, by changes, by a uh, lack of performance in other key sectors such as equities and bonds, and uh, of course, uh, emergence of great trends due to supply-demand disruptions uh, due to one reason or another. Now, in the last few decades, we've seen an, an enormous growth in the number of CTAs, and therefore, obviously, I guess investors can find it hard to distinguish one from another. If you were just going to summarize sort of the key points about Roe and, and, and the Roe Altus program in particular, what would you say that is? What should investors take from, from this uh, talk that you, have, you and I have had today? Uh, precisely what we said at the very beginning, that the primary purpose of CTAs is to provide offsets to portfolios of equities and bonds. And typically, these offsets have costs if you were to buy a put or uh, some other form of protection. However, because CTAs can be profitable, holding them is uh, less onerous or can be less, uh, doesn't cost as much as buying an outright insurance policy. Uh, so I think... Uh, the primary reason why we need to have portfolio a CTA in your portfolio is to give you offsets when there are sustained declines in the equity markets and the bond markets. And uh, uh, Roe has spent a lot of time and effort in designing systems that are geared specifically for responding to changes in the equity and bond markets over different time frames. And we've uh, demonstrated and proved that we can give positive offsets. Uh, on time intervals ranging from one week to one month to six months to a year, uh, and then we have to we have to recognize that investors, by definition, are going to be long equity and long bonds. So the strategy that they're using is long equity and long bonds. So what is the offset to that strategy? Is the ability to go short, the ability to trade other instruments, the ability to react faster than their current uh, strategies, and we deliver all of that uh, in row. So I think we need to make sure, of course, that there's a high probability uh, that Altius will make money, and we've done that uh, uh, you know, uh, when there are trends in the markets. So the reason why we've designed the program is because we want to provide this positive offset. Uh, the reason that we are in the business is because we strongly believe that uh, there is a need for investors to have this kind of offset capability, this sort of insurance or protection in their portfolio. Uh, they need to uh, be able to respond at high speed. They need to respond consistently. They need to do it uh, in an unemotional and consistent way so that you're not relying on the discretion of somebody. Uh, you don't have to worry about somebody's finger freezing on the button, if you will, because we have a systematic and disciplined approach to delivering this offset performance uh, for the investor when they really truly need it, when markets are moving rapidly or they're moving in a confusing way. Now, just to finish on uh, on a slightly different uh, note, um, of course, there are lots of listeners today who are not necessarily investing with CTAs, but in fact are trying to become a CTA. What would you say it takes to become a great trader or CTA in, 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 in your opinion? Uh, uh, first of all, uh, you have to be an optimist uh, in this business to survive. Uh, you have to bring an original point of view, uh, why you want to do it a certain way. Uh, 
and uh, you need to be able to explain to people in a way that makes sense to them uh, why you're doing what you're doing. And I think uh, with those three things, uh, you should be able to uh, be successful as a CTA. Tushar, this has been a great conversation. I appreciate your uh, openness, your willingness to share your insights and your views on your strategy and row as a firm and the industry as a whole. So have a great uh, afternoon. Thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.